0: Welcome to All The Things, with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique.
1: Hello, and
2: welcome. Welcome to Saturday. All right, welcome to All The Things.
1: I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show. Where we talk about all the things related to God, the
2: Bible, and real life. I'm just trying to make sure you knew, okay? (laughs) Make sure sure. I knew. I was
1: trying to make sure you were going to make it.
2: Well, there was that. (laughs) There was that. But I did. Won't he do it, (laughs) y'all? You guys helping us out on the show tonight is the one and only Miss Alicia Moss.
1: That's right. And uh, also helping us on the show this night and every night is the one and only Bob Bontrager. All right, loving a hat, uh, Burt Side Lake, there up in the boundary waters of Minnesota. And uh, we are live, so we want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation. Uh, this is the show where we actually read the comments during the live stream. It always bothers me when people don't actually read the comments. Really? Yeah. Because oh. it's like, why am I, what's the benefit of watching this live if no one? my existence so hi Nikki
2: and Emily oh Minnesota sitting out by the fire okay oh, oh what well, part of Minnesota we just um, such
1: happy memories where were we at we were in Adina yeah. and St. Paul and but now see if Emily lives up at on a lake if she got one of those lakeside cabins or um, sitting out there up at the boundary waters oh I can picture that that so nice. sounds like something out of
2: like one of those. What was that? The name of that book? And it had that little boy, and he wore that hat with a little tail
1: on it. Davy Crockett. Is that it?
2: <laughs>
1: that's that's Kentucky. That's a little farther south.
2: Oh, whatever. <laughs> it it sounds like sound country.
1: I don't sounds know. country. We yeah,
2: at the you're, boundary waters. I don't know. Dork. I don't know. I I'm a city girl. You I don't, are a city girl. I don't girl. deal with boundary waters. Yes.
1: Uh, jermaine is checking in from georgia yes out in atlanta glad to have everybody here so we'll be in
2: georgia soon are we well yeah in pine
1: mountain oh yeah july Uh uh-huh yeah yes all right so uh this is also the part of the show where we encourage audience participation so make sure that you share like. the
2: show, like the show, yeah. send the show to your enemy. You want you ever want, maybe this is just petty. So I do have like another personality called petty mo. That's what we call her. Um, and she she's just petty. But if you ever want to just like get under your enemy's skin, send them, you know, maybe y'all have maybe y'all differ on on theologies. So send them our podcast. Petty Mo.
1: the opinions of Mo don't necessarily reflect those of the rest of us. All right. Well, it's only you and me. What do you mean the rest of us? (laughs) (laughs) But but please do support the show. Share the show with a friend. This show is brought to you by... Okay.
2: We got to do things in order. (laughs) The show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. The Theology Mom Podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. And speaking of Family210
1: clothing, you actually um, created a new shirt this week. I did. It's my very first theology mom design. Yes. It says, I don't co-parent with the government. As Monique likes to say, the government.
2: Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. Y'all, keep going.
1: Okay. So you can go check that out at family210.com. A portion of every purchase goes to help our family or help the ministry. So go check it out. Yes.
2: Now I'm excited. Um, now that we've got through all the house cleaning, I'm excited because my podcast partner from off code is going to actually be joining us tonight. Kevin Briggins. Um, we do, we do off code together. We'll talk about off code a little bit, but he wrote, um, an amazing article or not article like a blog. Um, on you know the multi-ethnic church and his experience in the multi are you gonna pull it up there because we got notes you know what
1: all right there we go (laughs) now i know what i'm
2: doing (laughs) his experience in having a church that um was struggling with some of the the dynamics of being or wanting to be multi-ethnic and and not just wanting to be multi-ethnic but i think being multi-ethnic from cultures um
1: position or stand and he'll be able to tell us all about that. Well, I think what's going to be helpful about this conversation is that I think many churches have been struggling, particularly in recent years of, you know, how do we have a conversation about race Mm -hmm. and how do we do it in a way that is helpful, not divisive. And, um, you know, there's some helpful insights I think Kevin can give us on these issues because he was an elder at a multi-ethnic church and really going through the the thick of some difficult days and just, and giving us some, walking us through some some wisdom of the things that they struggled with, lessons learned. Um, I think it's a good case study for describing what I think a lot of churches have been going through. And um, also, we, we want to touch on you know maybe his thoughts on George Yancey's new book because he just finished leading a book group yeah. through that. And I think that um, may even have some connection to the wider conversation. So, yeah.
2: I, so with the amount of um, letters and um, calls that we take regarding how can I better lead a church that is, you know, multi-ethnic, or how do we, how do we, um, pursue multi, a multi-ethnic congregation and things like that. I think a lot of pastors are just trying to wade their way through this cultural conversation. And, um, I think Kevin's piece was really good is, um, in looking at, you know, we need to stay biblical. Yeah, What does that mean?
1: So with that, let's get Kevin on here and, welcome him to the show. Hey, Kevin.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, now, for those who really follow the ministry, Kevin's not new. He's been on the family meeting a couple of times, and you guys co-host Off Code together. Um, but maybe a good place to start, Kevin, is just tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, don't give us your whole life story, just because <laughs> as fascinating as it might be. But just give us a little introduction, and then maybe tell us how you found the ministry.
0: Yeah, so I always like to start off with I'm a husband and a father. Uh, me and my wife, Shalanda, we've been married 15 years, and we have three daughters, and during the time of the period of this of this um, blog that I wrote, which started as a Facebook post, um, I, I was serving as a layholder in a predominantly white, reformed, non-traditional Southern Baptist church, and so... Um, that was kind of the context I was in and I found the ministry because of the things we were going through. And I saw Mo on the Elisa Childers podcast and boom, there, there it was. I went straight to Facebook. I found her and I found the ministry and then we've just been connected ever since.
1: Yeah. We started seeing you comment on our social media and we're like, who's this Kevin guy? (laughs) And so of course, Monique had to stalk you and figure out who you were because okay so
2: if i'm glad i passed us. my
0: background check that's all I got to
1: say. well we had
2: a conversation with you we had a conversation with shalonda we've been out to dinner True. um yeah yeah we we really appreciate both of you yeah um because yeah i think you just you add a different dynamic to the conversation and especially now with off code and things like that what we're able to dive into is different
1: yeah is. well maybe we should uh, since we've mentioned off code several times, that might be new for for people. Why don't you guys talk a little bit about the podcast and your vision for it? Well, Kevin is the guest, so I'm gonna put him on the spot.
2: Um, and I'll I'll follow up. And we also have a clip of off code so we can show people exactly okay. what we do. But um are
1: we gonna play that later?
2: We'll play it as soon as we we finish saying oh, okay. what we're up to. Okay. So, Kevin, here let me ask this. What what was your vision um in saying yes? Cause I think I well, I approached you, you had been Pestering me. I'm going to go ahead and say it. You need to do a podcast about this. You need to do a podcast about this. And eventually I was like, okay, I think, yes, I can see that. And don't you want to do it with me? And you was like, yes. And I was like, wow, so quick. Okay, here we go.
0: Yeah. So, first of all, it started out with your vision. I was just handling you about doing it because you gave the vision for it. And you just had a heart for really addressing some issues within the Black community that weren't really being tackled in other places or in the the general discussion of things. And I thought that was a great idea. And then when you came to me and said, Hey, will you help me? Do you you want to co-host it? You know, anything, I've always told you guys, anything you guys are doing, I definitely don't mind being a part of it. And so um, I was like hundred percent. Yes, let's do it. And so we were kind of going with a name for it. And I said, Hey, what about off code? Because, there's a thing in our culture about being on code, which means you kind of um, stay in line with the general message. You don't talk about uh, family business industry. You don't talk about things in mixed company, right? And so there's this idea that there's one conversation we have behind closed doors and one we have in the public. And if the conversation is going negative, uh in any kind of way towards us we stay on code we don't we don't talk about it we you know we stay on code and so I wanted to break that and I said hey let's call it off code and let's have these real hard discussions and let's put it out there these uncomfortable conversations and then let's, let's just have the full picture conversation out in public and let's see what happens and so that's kind of what we've been doing
2: yep I remember um The reason why I wanted to start it was because so many things were being blamed on whiteness and white people. It was like, um, I remember when Lecrae came out with that thing about, we can't talk about abortion until we talk about whiteness. We can't talk about black abortion until we talk about whiteness or white people. And you know, poverty was blamed on whiteness and white people and drugs. And and I was just like, we can't blame everything on whiteness. Like if you get pregnant, you cannot say that you was lonely because of whiteness. Like all your actions and steps were because of whiteness that it don't make no sense. And so that's where like the idea of starting to talk about the things we, don't talk about publicly really mm-hmm. came from. And um, yeah, you really pushed me to do that. And I was like, okay, here it is. And so I'm super glad that we do it though. We're in our, we're going to record our fifth episode soon, right? Seventh, yeah. seventh. Seven. Seven. Seven.
1: sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Episodes five and six are already out.
1: Thank yeah. you. Thank <laughs> you so, for letting me know. So just so people know they can go catch uh, replays of off code, on the Center for Biblical Unity YouTube channel, it's also available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for "Off Code" and yep. you'll be able to get that. Do you want to play? A Let's quick- play a quick clip. I have All like right. a minute and a half clip. All right. So here's a little uh, free sample of Off Code.
0: People are trying to find different ways to solve the problem, but nobody is willing to go back and say have we lost, what did we lose, what changed? And what really changed was we got away from Christian principles that were so key to the um, black community, whether it's the civil rights movement, Christianity is key to, whether it's you know this, the, the principles of marriage. I mean, just growing up, I'll put it like this, we need more big mama churches. That's what yes. I would say.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: we, we have lost yes. Big Mama's church, Big Mama's religion, Big Mama's church, faith, hope, principles, uh, work at. We've lost all of that, all those things, and so mm-hmm. I think if if we're gonna really solve these these issues, we got to say, okay, what did we lose, and what do we need to get back to, instead yes. of trying to come up with new things uh, to kind of put band aids on the problem instead of looking at the root issues.
1: Now, for those of us who are, and what I what I love about the show, I'm going to tell you tell you what I love about it um, as kind of an outsider because uh, it's a very educational show. You guys weave into the conversation a lot about Black culture and that I think that people like me is like, oh, that's new, like this term, Big Mama's Church. Now, y'all are going to have to explain what that is because. Even when we, when we filmed it, I was like, I have no idea what we're talking about here. We got a lot of questions about it on social media. So <laughs> these are the kind of things that Ofco does is it it's letting us listen in on this culture, going kind of a cross-cultural conversation. So what is Big Mama's Church?
2: I actually had somebody walk up to me when um, I was at a conference and they were like, can you explain Big Mama to me? <laughs> <laughs> Big mom was um, like, were you gonna say it?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say like in the black community, uh, it was very you know, um, like a matriarch, and so big mom was always grandmama, you know, and she was the matriarch of the family, and she was in church, and you went to church, and everybody went to church because big mom went to church, and in those churches, those churches were very, very deeply gospel-centered, gospel preaching churches, right? and there was a certain principle and ethic you were expected to live by. And, you know, it, we, we joke around about it now, about, you know, don't, don't be showing your knees. if You know, that skirt better not be above your knees. No, just things like that, you know. Um, being promiscuous was not a thing that was celebrated or, you know, it was something that was really frowned upon. You carried yourself in a certain way. Um, you took responsibility, you was hardworking. Um, but most importantly there was a big emphasis on hope and faith in Christ and and that 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 drove everything um, throughout the civil rights movement throughout slavery the ch- the church was really key to the um, the perseverance of the black community it was this hope of uh, this eternal hope not a Temporal liberation of things that was the eternal hope it found in Christ that got people through and we shun that for kind of this political ex, um, Expedient type of movement and method of liberation on the here and now and we've really forgot about the bigger picture and in doing so um, I just feel like we, we need to get back to what's really important and so big mama churches are just heart traditional gospel center gospel music singing you know i will beat your behind if you cut up in church you know type churches it was, <laughs> it was the church we grew up in right and so a lot of those churches just aren't the same today right um and so i was like we need we need to get back to that hope and that foundation and principles that got them through those times and we need to remember that and, and gravitate back to that so that's, that's yes,
2: I can't believe you talked about having a skirt down below your knees. <laughs> I went I remember going to a church in college and um because if your skirt's too short, you gotta tell them what they do. Oh they give you a, they can give you a skirt. They gotta like I went to the case. Um like a, or like or a,
0: like put a, put a prayer your cloth yeah, to put, put over legs.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, you can't show your legs out and you can't show your shoulders and your arms. The devil is a lie. <laughs> we will not.
1: So do they have like alternative clothes if you don't show up the, the right way?
2: Well, the, I was going to say the church I went to when I was in college, um, I visited and yes, they had another, like a little closet. Yeah, And I said, Oh yeah. Yes. But yes, you can't, don't be coming at the not in the Lord's house, that unholy
1: mess. Uh Uh-uh. We will not do it. So go check out off code uh, and the, uh, wonderful conversations that Monique and Kevin are having over there. Again, you can find that just by searching for Off Code on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, mm-hmm. as well as on the Center for Biblical Unity um, YouTube channel. There you go. Yes. There's our playlist. Thanks, Bob. That's it. So go check that out. So right. with that, let's transition into the conversation maybe. Um, and again, uh, tonight's conversation was kind of launched because of a a Facebook post that we turned into a a blog Blog post post over on the center for biblical unity website by Kevin. And um, so that will be the written kind of the written version of tonight's show, but maybe walk us back to um, setting some context in the church that you were in um, kind of pre 2016 election and what you guys, what your vision was for the church and and um what were yeah. relations like yeah. then in your church?
0: Um relationships were great. It was there was no issues. We were a healthy church, we were a growing church, we were a vibrant church, we were a, a mission-driven church. Um
1: where were you except, located?
0: Like, so we had we had recently located the end of 2015 from a suburban context to an inner city context. So we merged with a dying church in the inner city. Um, they had a huge property. So we were in a storefront in the suburbs. We were like just busting out the seams, running multiple services, that type of thing. And so the, we we really wanted to be in the city. And so, and it was also the, the cheaper option as opposed to building a new building. You know. So we took over with this existing church. Um, they were dying out. The the young couple in the church was 65. Right, that's they. They were just, you know, dying out, and getting older, and they they were meeting in the chapel of the church, and not even in the main sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of cut the power off to the rest of the church, to keep the, the cost down. But they had a huge campus. This was a historic church of its day that used to be vibrant, but you know, in 2015, it was it was almost dead. And so we merged with them. When I say merged, we took over. We kept the name of the church. That was, that was pretty much the extent of it. Um, but it put us in a context of a a mixed community, majority black, but still mixed. It was still a lot of, you know, um, whites that lived there. Everybody was typically on the lower economic, um, scale of things. Um, and so that's what we found ourselves. So we went from a place of no, material need around us to a place where it's all around us and also a historic sense of racial division right and so we're i think most people are familiar with the term white flight or the term of kind of the white migration from the inner cities to the suburbs and so what happened to a lot of these churches is you know people used to live in the community and then go to the church in the community well as that demographics of the community change the church never reached out to the new demographic, which was predominantly black then, um, and so um, as we're coming in as a predominantly still white congregation in a neighborhood that is mostly lower economic and black, there were some you know cultural and and racial and economic hurdles, you know, um, to to overcome in trying to share the gospel and reach the community um, for Christ. So, so was, the kind of leadership,
1: was the leadership's goal then to, even though the church was predominantly white, um, I assume they didn't live in that neighborhood, but there was some level of intentionality that they wanted to have to reach that neighborhood yes. with the gospel. Okay. Yes,
0: yes. Um, yeah, so we wanted to really be a part of the neighborhood, um, and so we had members of the church move into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We had some of the pastors move into the neighborhood, um, and yeah, we just wanted to build relations. So um, we we we've really had a, a kind of a community development type of mindset of moving into the community, becoming neighbors, and just really being a part of the community and not being the church that drove in for Sunday services and then drove back out. We we didn't want to do that. And so, and we felt if we were ever going to reach the people in the community, we needed to be present. And so that was a big emphasis.
2: Now, my my um, my question was, or, or Chris's question, one of the two, was around the twenty fifteen twenty sixteen time, yeah. um, and what was the relationship like before that time? And you said it was good. When it did you great. guys actually move into the neighborhood? Like, how long had things been okay?
0: Um, so we merged in, I think it was September of twenty fifteen. Okay, and um, I would say within the next year. You had multiple families, you know, selling their homes and relocating into the community. Um, But like I say, all of that was great. The relationships in the church was great. There was no strife, there was no, everybody was on the same page. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't until the summer of 2016 that things began to change. Um, And that was primarily driven by two high profile shootings of um, Alton Sterling in Louisiana, and Philando Castile, and those two shootings, and then followed by the Colin Kaepernick kneeling, right? And so all these things kind of blew up all at one time. And so not to mention the, the election that happened in the fall, but it all started with the shootings that summer.
1: So what shifts then did you start noticing among the people in your church as those events were unfolding in 2020? Yeah.
0: Yeah. or 2016 sorry yeah at first it was very you know mild it was a lot of black people during that time was really struggling with these shootings that were caught on video um the perception of things was this is just bad and happening everywhere this is an epidemic um and there was just real fear and i i used the example of my sister calling me one day crying and just telling me to be careful, right? That was this genuine fear of black men being shot, you know? And so I got to tell people, it doesn't matter if the fear is, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it does Warranted? Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's warranted or not. It just matters that it's real. And there were people, even in our church, that was kind of really shaken up by those shootings and felt a certain type of way and so it really started out as just kind of this concern of what's going on these feelings in the community and so the first thing we did was we held a um, kind of a I don't call it a panel discussion but it was me and the lead pastor on stage we did kind of kind of an interview style and kind of what we're doing now he just got me to explain what was going on and what why people were feeling the way they were feeling and 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 just kind of giving the church a broader understanding of why what was going on, right? And why the black community was responding the way it was and seeing things the way it was. And um and then we you know we did a Q&A, And so people could just ask questions and you know, we can just we were just trying to help shepherd and guide people through this. And at the time it was like, okay, that was that was great. That was nothing controversial about it. It was it was good. It was it what happened over time were black, some of the black people in the church began to read things and be shaped differently and have a different view and post certain things on Facebook. And Facebook is really where it got ugly. Because as they posted certain things that was very, uh, I would call it inflammatory, and other people in the church responded to it, it just, it just spiraled. It just got really bad. Um,
1: What would be an example of what they were, what they were reading? Um, Help us understand that. And, you know, we want to make it clear. It's not about like targeting how the black people in the congregation were responding. It's, it's, I'm sure there was, there was inflammatory remarks made on both sides on social media just has that way of bringing out the worst in us.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. But if I'm going to frame like what really was taking the church down, it was one side posting and one side responding predominantly. Um, And the things I would say they begin to read more than the most influential person in this whole thing is James Baldwin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so James Baldwin became very influential with someone in our church and that kind of led them down the the rabbit hole of of other things.
1: Now, Um, for those who don't know who James Baldwin is, or that's a new name, maybe uh, you guys could kind of summarize some of his ideas or his impact. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, so James Baldwin was a um, Black um, writer and activist within the civil rights movement, 50s, 60s. Um, He was very... Bold in his statements and his proclamations. He um, he was very bitter and very angry, also. And he was also um, gay and an atheist. So he's a black gay atheist who is just really angry about the um, oppression, discrimination. I mean, you gotta think he's 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 writing in the 50s. You know, this is you know, civil rights movement, this is uh, schools being se- desegregated. This is um, Emmett Till being killed. This is a lot of things going on, hot button issues. Then the Civil Rights Movement, then Dr. King's assassination, Malcolm X's assassination. So that was a lot of things that was going and shaping his views at the time, along with his his um, self-image of himself, who he was, I am a man. Like That was just a lot that went into his writings and um, and he was just—he became very influential with a particular person in our church, and uh, Baldwin's ideas started to be perpetuated and, and put out there. And like I said, that just led to other things as well. And so I'll put it like this: there was a—I'm not going to say the the person who tweeted it, who wrote the initial tweet—but it was shared on Facebook by someone in our church, and it said the uh, evangelical church has only existed for the purpose of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Right? So imagine somebody in your church sharing that. And that just kicked up a hornet's nest. You just basically told somebody their whole faith is nothing but white supremacy and to oppress Mm -hmm. others. right? And it, it was those kinds of things that was just really like just setting things off. And it was really, really ugly i mean it was bad i mean people were going back and forth i mean there weren't name calling but it was just really heated and um it wasn't christ-like i mean if it was if there were unbelievers watching this i i I pray that was nobody that was that was that wasn't a christian seeing these things that was going on because it was it was it was people really going at each other um but
2: let me ask you this do you think that It was the cultural moment of like Philando Castile that that created these emotions in people. Because I really like what you said. I, I appreciate that you said, you know, the fear may not have been warranted, Um, it might not have been factually, you know, warranted, but because it appears real because, um, the the feelings are with it. And
1: the, the it being that black men were just being Being gunned down in the streets. Yes.
2: Um, do you think that that was like, um, the, the catalyst or the, what, what really revved up the emotions? Or do you think that there were people who were just living undercover kind of, you know, this is what I think anyway, but I'm just going along to get along because we don't talk about this in mixed company. Mixed company being black and white, not male and female.
0: Yeah. No, I think that those ideas and feelings did not exist prior to those shootings. Mm-hmm. It was something completely out the blue and something completely new. Um, and I, I say that because those people have expressed those same things. Yeah. That it was the, those shootings that really sent them down a path of kind of depression and anger. And um, they did not like the response that their white brothers and sisters were giving to these things because, okay. yeah.
2: Well, and, in, and were you going to say something? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to go on to the next thing. In looking at the response to, you know, the shootings and, by this time, I'm sure like books had starting to be written. Baldwin was already out there. Um, I'm sure W.E.B. Du Bois was, you know, out there and people are putting him up. Even Hughes, Langston Hughes to a degree and and some of his writings and and thoughts. What was your elder team's response to what was starting to really rev up in your church?
0: Yeah, um, so first, like I said, we did the first panel discussion when these things first started, um, and that went really well. We eventually did a second one. Um, I think, no, and then actually we did a third one where we invited people from the outside to kind of do a Q&A and kind of give some perspective and stuff. Um, I will say this, because those people who were those loudest voices that had the issues they took offense that they were never asked to be on the panel and given a microphone. They were really offended that I was up there speaking and they weren't, they, they really took it personal. Um, and, so, uh, that, and so that was, so we did the panel discussions. We did a sermon series on the book of Amos on justice. We did, um, now this was a controversial thing that we did. Um, looking back on it, I probably, probably wouldn't do it again. That's just speaking from me. But because there were so many issues and there was so much tension, we had dinner at one elder's house, you know, cooked out, and we invited all the Black families from the church to come, only the Black families. And we just said, let us hear your heart. Like, what's on your mind? What are you feeling? You know, what are your concerns? And um, that night went really well. It was once the rest of the church found out that we had had kind of a black only type of meeting that they they thought was uh, the wrong direction to go. Right. Um, and so, like I said, we were really trying to make efforts to, we had a portion of the church that really had some concerns. They had some issues they had things they were going through they had emotions they were dealing with and we were really trying to help them not only navigate those those things but um just kind of help us i'm saying okay how can we minister to you how can we shepherd you right and what it, what it ended up being eventually was there was just demands and things that they had wanted that we couldn't adhere to you know uh and so, I mean, like I said, there that were, that were you know, some legitimate things, but some of the things you can tell looking back at it now was just driven by kind of what we would call a CRT type of ideology now. Um, the the color of the authors and theologians quoted from the pulpit was brought into question, you know, so not the legitimacy or the accuracy of the, the sermon or the quote or who was quoted. It was, we're just quoting all white guys, mm-hmm. right? you know? um, And so, and so those types of things started to be issues they had, which before were never issues. Um, But all of a sudden, these are the type of new issues we're having to deal with. And, uh, and so, like I said, we, we took a listening ear. We took a discipleship approach. One thing that I did, um, I don't think I've ever really talked about this, but Because the online conversations were going so bad, they were so bad. So when you start a group on Facebook, it can be a public group, it can be a private group, or it can be a secret group. I started a secret group, which means that if somebody searches for it, they can't find it. And I took all of those kind of white, conservative, the people who were really arguing back and forth in the fight, I threw. i invited them to the group and i said we are going to have a real hard conversation about these things um i was the only uh, minority in the group at the time and i said let's hear it because anything that was said publicly was met with the accusation of racism which just shut everything down or made everything <laughs> defensive and so i said no judgment, no nothing. What are your thoughts? What, what What do you What do you have? And they started, you know, firing away, and I started responding and answering, you know, um, and I, I realized very, very quickly that they were just ignorant, and like from the definition of the word, they needed a history lesson. They did not understand the history and context of things, and I had to realize too that. Yeah, we were, in, we were living in the South, but everybody's not from the South. The things I grew up with learning, I realized they had no clue, right? No, like a lot of people now have heard of Tulsa, the Tulsa race riot. At the t- they had never heard of it, right? They had never heard of, you know, outside of like maybe the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, right? They might have heard of that. But just the general history of things that had happened in, in the South and the, the Jim Crow era and stuff. Like they had never heard of redlining. They had, they just they just had never heard of these things. And so that group just really turned into a history lesson at that point. You know, and so and eventually I invited our sister, Lisa Robinson Spencer, because I didn't want to just be the only you know, minority voice, but I wanted to bring people in I feel could handle the discussion without being sensitive and without being combative and can just really be patient and understand and have the conversation. And so Lisa is great at that. And so I invited her in. She said, absolutely. And she started, you know, answering questions and and having conversations. And it was really going well. Um, And so that was one thing that we did that I thought was, I would call a a success to a degree, Uh, was just kind of help them understand the history and why the Black community was seeing things the way they were seeing them. Why is this guy that shot... In, in one state viewed as an attack on the black community? What is it about Donald Trump's words that make them say, nah, this sounds, this is racism. This is Jim Crow again. This is, you know, as Joe Biden, Joe Biden said, they're going to put you back in chains. Like people were really afraid of these things. It's like, why are they afraid of these things? Well, you got to understand the, the rhetoric of the past. You got to understand what law and order used to mean right? Um, and so just giving people an understanding of those things um, was, was, was was helpful. And so that's one thing we did. Um, we did a book club. So the people who were mostly engaged on both sides, we invited them to sit down and have um, be a part of a book club. We went over George Yancey's first book, Beyond Racial Gridlock, and we said, let's have a book club. We invited them in and the people, the, the, the black people in the church that had the biggest issues refused to be a part of it. And so um, we didn't have the book club. We just invited others who, who said, yeah, they would be a part of it. And it was really productive. And out of that book club, we produced a white paper on justice and race um, that was collaborative from people from both sides. of so this kind of, not, not the most extreme people because they refused to be a part of it. But you know, we brought other people in, and we, and then we had a um, kind of a Q and A with the church where we presented the white paper and we talked about things and kind of put it out there. And so that was; those were kind of some of the steps we took to try to bring the church through these things. Um, as I said in the in the in the blog, we really took a discipleship approach. To get both sides to understand where the other was coming from, it wasn't to say, "Hey, you're right, you're wrong." It was simply to say, "You need to understand where they're coming from." You don't have to agree, but this that people were demonizing one another. They were we need they they weren't seeing each other as human, you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it was both sides seeing the other as a threat. And uh, we just really wanted to bring understanding because. When, you're in a, when you have a church, you're in a diverse church, you're going to have a diverse set of opinions, right? You know, everybody isn't going to be very conservative. Everybody isn't going to be, you know, kind of social justice minded. But you need to understand where the other person is coming from and just willing to fellowship and be in community with one another despite not agreeing on some of those things. Um, but what we found was that at the time was not possible. It, well, just, before,
1: before you get into all that, okay. I want to echo a couple of things that you said there. Um, the first thing is about the history. I mean, I just uh-huh. want to say uh-huh. thank you for making a space where people could, where white people in particular could ask questions. Uh-huh. Like, just thank you for, for doing that. Because um, if I had had a space like that, Um, You know, that would have been very helpful because I was one of those people that before I met Monique, I never heard of the Tulsa massacre. I didn't know anything about the bombing of the church in Birmingham. Um, I didn't even know about that until we went to visit there uh, last year. I'd never heard of it. And um, I there were so many parts of history that I didn't know about. And also one of the things that we've learned together in conversation, there's, while Monique was extremely fluent in, in African- All things black. Yeah, black yes. history. There was a lot of gaps in, in her knowledge of things that I knew a lot about in our history. Mm-hmm. And so there's been definitely some teaching of each other. Yeah,
2: I was gonna say about history, you know, it's, I think many black people are taught one side of black history. People like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams she are never Black history, but we aren't taught that. Yep. And I mean, how amazing, how prolific, how, you know, smart are these, these people who are Carol Swain, a part of Black history that we aren't told about. So I knew every injustice, basically, that had ever happened to to Black people. I knew, you know, looking at um, like the Harlem Renaissance period and, you know, all of these different um, musicians and artists that came out of that and things like that, writers, I could, I can quote you volumes from Langston Hughes, one of my most favorite authors. And yet I could not tell you one person who had a different vein of thought who was Black. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do, I think that the history is, is very needed. I also think that it's important for, you know, everyone to understand all of America's history. America has some really cool history, you know, in her past and it's okay to acknowledge that. And she has yes. some crap, like yes. this, this was some crap. This is some mess. And we need to be able to acknowledge that as well. That's the biblical approach. We see Israel as a prize and we see her as a prostitute. hmm That is, if we're going to be Christian about it and we're going to uphold a historic Christian narrative, well, we have to be able to look at the reality, all of it, not Mm -hmm. just the parts that, you know, make me feel good and tingly on the inside.
0: This is the way I like to frame it. The Civil War, not Civil War, World War II, right? Probably one of the greatest achievements in, in human history. Like that was very decisive in the swing of human history and america itself is on the right side of it people died for um the sake of the freedom of others right um we fought a war against real evil and won it well that's true and that is to be celebrated and praised but at the same time that's the 1940s what happened when black soldiers came home like how would it like so it's two sides to america it's like this greatness that is really truly there Yep. But then there's this other side. It's like you're failing to live up to your values, right? And I think that kind of situation really frames the complexity of what America is or America um, used to be in its history and its founding, right? It's very complex. It's not simply the 1619 Project or it's not simply all red, white, and blue patriotism. Yes. right. It is a mix of both of those well, I'm gonna say both because the 1619 Project is you know, kind of historically inaccurate. Um, but that sense of a wrong being done and injustice being done alongside the fact of America is like a modern day marvel. From a nation standpoint, this is something that has never existed in human history. Mm-hmm. Uh, self-governance people, people from all... I, I, I know we like to break things down to black and white, but all those white people came over were not one single group of people. They were multiple different ethnicities and groups and classes. And And so when you understand like the real melting pot that America was and still is, it is a miracle in its existence. But it's also the reason we have some very, very unique issues here that, that isn't common to other nations that are usually like homogeneous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, think, I think we have to acknowledge both sides of that history to understand the complexity of it, instead of gravitating to one side of it.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I think that that's really important, especially um, when we're when we're talking about history because so much emphasis is always put on history. Well, if you knew the history, then you would be, you know, outraged too. And they, a lot of people can make it seem like America is so unique in her racism, like it's our original sin. There's no other country on the planet that is as racist as America, that has the issues that America has had. And in reality, the the dynamics that you're talking about within our nation of being this, you know, like coming home from World War II, you know, there's this red, white, and blue. Some soldiers are really se- celebrated and things like that, but then you have another group of soldiers coming home from the same war who weren't celebrated, who didn't get the honorable mission mentions and, you know, the celebrations and, you know, all of that hoopla and things like that. And is that not the condition actually of us as individuals, the, the greatness that we can possess and be, and yet the horrible, sinful mess that we can also be? And that is part of, every condition in every country on the planet. And so, I don't know, there's something about like the way that you're you're talking that it makes, it reminds me that, yes, we do have unique issues here in America. And yet our issues are not so unique that it separates us from the, the grander scheme of history and the grander scheme of humanity.
0: 100%. And uh, I'll just say if anybody hasn't traveled the world, they might think that, hey, America is unique in its issues of racism or ethnic or tribal. It is definitely not. It exists so. every corner of the world. Um, so, I, I mean, I've had friends who were missionaries in Turkey, and they would say, black, white has nothing on the hatred between Turks and Kurds, right? It is a real deal. And so, we just need to understand this is a human condition, not an American condition. And um, yeah, we need to, you know, just kind of acknowledge that and not think like America is some unique place when it comes to differences or oppression between groups.
1: Yeah. Um, The other thing that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago was reading George Yancey's first book. and i would love to have you talk a little bit about yancey's model because he might not be familiar to everybody um but i think your perspective could be helpful plus you just finished leading a group through um the second book. the his george yancey's most recent book his, yeah. and uh, also on race issues And uh, Kevin is one of our book group discussion leaders at Center for Biblical Unity. So maybe just talk to us about Yancey's model and uh, what that is. And then maybe any thoughts you have about was that model effective in your own church situation as you as you look back on that now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Yancey, his model is what he calls collaborative conversations. And what he wants to do is take people on, and and in his latest book, he he only focused on two groups. And that's what he uses, the colorblind group, which kind of, we would say white evangelicals typically fall into. Um, And then he had the anti-racism crowd. And so those are kind of the two competing ideologies on the topic of race. And his, his idea is, to come together. Everybody gets a seat at the table, everybody gets a voice and we, you know, active listening. I will say this, he has some really good, um, kind of recommendations for just general conflict resolution. Right. If I was doing marriage counseling, there's things in his book that I would recommend, you know, like active listening, you know, being slow to speak before you you know, making sure the other person is heard. Um, but from my position and and because like i said we really tried his model the first time and this is where i think yancy kind of misses a certain point and it's really in point he frames a lot of things in terms of interest you know you give up some of your interest and you compromise and they give up some of their interests and they compromise, right? And we compromise to this deal where everybody feels validated and heard, and then we can really come up with solutions to these issues of race. Where his model doesn't work, and where his model kind of misses the, the mark is he he frames everything in this in this in a in a framework of interest. You have a certain interest, you need to give up your interest, you need to be able to compromise on your interest. Well, what if it's not my own interest that's driving my position where I see things? What if it's my values and my principles? How do I compromise my values, right? And I think by not acknowledging a lot of people are coming from a position of values, like take the colorblind model. Now, I don't agree with the way he defines colorblind. I define colorblind, and I believe most people define colorblind as the practice of not showing partiality for or against anyone on the basis of race, right? Colorblind, treat everybody the same, not on the basis of skin color. To me, that is a biblical principle. I'm not going to compromise on a biblical principle for the sake of some type of outcome of racial harmony. Right. Um, and I think that's where he, he kind of misses the mark in his evaluation of things and why I believe his things, his model doesn't work in a church because a church is built on principles and biblical principles and values. We can't simply compromise those for the sake of some unity outcome. Right. Uh, especially when you're dealing with some things on the other side that might be anti-biblical. Right. And so that's where I think he doesn't really uh, uh, address things where his model really doesn't work within the church because in the church, you have to stand on your convictions a lot of times. And that doesn't telling me to compromise my values. You can tell me to compromise my interest. If it's just kind of self interest. Right. But I can't compromise my values. I can't compromise my principles. And so that's where I believe his model where, well, Well where it's well intended and Yancey's a really, really good guy, I think it's not going to be effective or reach the goal that he wants because he's framing everything on interest and most people I don't think are coming from their self interest, they're coming from their values and their principles. And so that's that would be my kind of broad kind of stroke claim or review of of his approach.
1: Monique, do you want to weigh in on that? Because I know you did a deep dive into Yancey's book. You wrote something for Christianity Today. There's a short piece. We published the longer version mm-hmm. also on our blog. So,
2: yeah, I, I agree. Um, I do think that when it comes down to... Um, you know, bringing everybody to the table, everybody can come to the table, but at the end of the day, how are we going to know who's right? How are we going? And there is an objective truth that will allow you to know what is right and what is wrong. We have the good, true and beautiful in scripture. And so when we look at the scripture how are we like, how are we allowing scripture to adjudicate what is right? And what is wrong? If I'm just sitting down at the table, it's cool. We can eat. I'm not trying to wish you any harm. I don't want you to starve. But at the end of the day, if I got to make a choice between your interests and the word of God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to lean over in this camp. And at the end of the day, I am probably going to look like the divisive one and so that's kind of where where it rubbed for me um
0: i wouldn't even say the divisive when i said you're gonna come off from his approach from being the arrogant one of feeling like you have the truth or the right way
2: well that's the that's the exact thing i was gonna say um is that he meant there's a line in the book where he says that just because we're christian we can't act like we have basically like, we have the word of God, like God has said, and I'm like, but but God has said. And do you remember that part in the book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely.
2: so that's where, and I was, I was clear like in, and they kept it in the Christianity Today piece. And, and I think I expounded upon it in the longer piece is that no, as Christians, we must, we must act like thus saith the Lord because thus saith the Lord. Like if I don't act like thus saith the Lord, when my whole faith is a mess. So it's a, it's a wash. Yeah. I can do what I want because really, maybe he said it, maybe he didn't.
0: Yeah. And his so, whole, yeah, his whole premise is built on compromise. And I understand that from a conflict resolution standpoint.
2: Yes. But
0: when we're talking about values of biblical principles, it's, compromise is not the word I would advise. Right. Sometimes you have to stand on truth regardless of what the outcome might be. Right. Yeah.
2: No, I, I agree. I, um, yeah, I think that that's enough on, on the because That'll take us down a whole different track, but.
1: Well, let no, me I ask you, let's, let's go back to your, your church story. What was the ultimate outcome? I mean, as you were, as you said earlier, you took a discipleship approach, you and your elder team, you, you did some things you were trying to help people get on the same page. Use some pretty creative tactics. I think, um, what, what was the fruit of that? And, and what was the outcome?
0: Um, The loud black crowd eventually left. They left first um, because they could not continue on under the white supremacy, right? The oppression of white supremacy. Um, And because they viewed everything as simply, if we didn't go along with their recommendations or their thoughts, or we didn't, you know, put them on the panel discussion and hand them the mic. Um, Then it was simply trying to maintain the status quo, right? It was simply trying, you know, whites trying to maintain their power, not willing to give it up, right? And then then you put it in Christian language, right? They would say that was repentance, right? Or justice to to hand over that power to them, right? Um, And once they realized that wasn't going to happen, then they no longer could, worship under the oppression of white supremacy, even though for years they had been part of the fellowship of the church with no issue friend, close, close friendships, close friendships, y'all totally thrown under the bus because of this new lens that was now adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, the, French, the more, the loudest conservative voices in the church um, eventually left as well because they didn't feel like we took a strong enough stand against uh, this threat to liberalism. Right. Um, And this is the thing we we acknowledge to the conservative crowd. We understand the implications of where they could end up. But as pastors and as shepherds, we're praying, we're trying to keep them from going down this road, right? We know where this road goes. They have no idea where they're headed. We do. And we're trying to stop them from going down this road. If we totally shun any concern they have, anything they bring up, they're just gonna bolt. And they eventually left anyway. And we have to just be okay with that. But the goal was to really stop them from going down the road. We understood. The road of liberalism and liberal theology and liberation theology things that they were coming across for the first time were things that were not new to us and we understood the language now we didn't know like about crt at the time but we understood liberal and progressivism we understood liberal theology and progressive theology we understood the things that they were saying and reading could could send them down the wrong road and here we are in 2022 and i can tell you they've gone full blown down that road Right. And it's really sad. Um, but so even though we told those people on the French conservative side, like, look, we get it. We understand. And even though there was never any of that stuff preached from the pulpit, there was never any of that stuff expires from us. They still had a lack of trust in us. They didn't like the way we handled it. They thought we should have been way more boisterous in our opposition to them. And eventually those people left the church as well. For churches that they feel was taking a stronger stance against some of these things, Um, and so and so both fringes of the church left, and I believe the church is, even though I'm no longer in that church, if I just had to say from an outside looking, it's probably healthier today. It's probably it's back to where it was before the crisis hit, because both of those groups kind of departed. So.
2: In hearing you and hearing you talk about like the oppression and white supremacy and, you know, all of these things, the, the thought that keeps coming to me is this is why definitions matter. Mm -hmm. This is why having biblical definitions and using biblical terms is really important. And people are like, well, you know, culture is using all these words and we need to be able to to speak their language. And you know what? Having an understanding of what's happening in culture is one thing. But when we come into the house of God, understanding what is a biblical definition of marginalization, what is a biblical definition of oppression, these things are very important. So you can really know when you might be being oppressed, but you can't just make up something and be like well because i don't have the the power of an elder now i'm oppressed do you have the qualifications of an elder <laughs> would be my question yeah but you know we when we don't have the proper definitions in place and the proper understanding of some of these words and how it was meant in its original context, you know, not how we've kind of flipped it around in 2022, but what did it mean biblically to be oppressed? Who were the marginalized in scripture? You know, then we can sit down and say, okay, no, you're not actually a marginalized person.
0: As as I, I I told them many times, people disagreeing with you is not oppression. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. You had people who just simply disagreed with you. That's not you being oppressed. (laughs) No one is oppressing you. They are disagreeing with you. And if you can't handle disagreement, then that's a problem. Right. And so. um,
2: But you want to be an elder. Stop it.
0: (laughs) No, they wanted to be a heard voice. They wanted to be a leading voice. They wanted a platform. They wanted to be affirmed. And there were like if you were part of those conversations that were have that would, that were happening on Facebook, you would say there's no way you can give that person a microphone in front of the church, right? They just lacked. They had a passion. They lacked discernment. They lacked wisdom. They lacked um, caring for people who didn't look like them. You know, right? They lacked the ability to care for people who didn't think like them. And there was no way we were going to hand them. A microphone in front of the church because we're trying to, you know, say, disciple the church. We're trying to give the church the right way to go. And, you know, we're not going to give them some of the kind of what we would call woke preacher clips that we've seen online would have definitely come from that pulpit or that stage if we had to give them a microphone. They were at that point in their ideology, right? And we just couldn't. We couldn't, but they desired to be and they resented that they weren't. And that was one of the biggest issues they had was they weren't asked to be up there. And then that was directed at me because I was up there, Mm -hmm. right? And that that made me the token, even though as I explained the different things that I was doing, it wasn't the thing, it wasn't the way they would approach it. It wasn't um, the steps they wanted to take. They didn't care about bringing people along. They were like, no, we need to, you know, if the church splits, it splits. Those people leave, they just leave. We need to just come at, both sides wanted us to just come at it with a hammer, Yep. right? And outside of coming at it with a hammer, from either perspective, nothing was good enough, right? And so um, no matter what efforts we made, it was never good enough. So uh, our lead pastor preached a sermon on justice. And it was, it was really good. And he, he's one of the best expositors, expositors of scripture that I've ever been around. And uh, one of the, the black members of the church who was very vocal, um, I guess he found out what was being preached that Sunday. And he showed up that Sunday. And afterwards, I just kind of say, hey, you know, what'd you think of the sermon? And His response was, uh, not impressed. Like, it wasn't to impress you. Right. It is just that was just no, no, nothing we did was good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they wrote articles and now a book on just all of the oppression they went through and the hardship they faced and all these types of things. And at the end of the day, they simply adopted a new worldview that all the people push back on. And they call themselves oppressed, and so um, I I still have a heart or a place in my heart for those people. We were really close, um, but today I
1: I don't know if I would call
0: them Christians today. I'll say that. I, they yeah so.
1: Now, you, you made a statement earlier that at that time you didn't know what critical race theory was. You didn't you didn't really know anything about that. And we're getting some mm-hmm. questions on the chat um, related to this. And because so much of the, the pushback that Monique and I receive is like, well, you're talking about critical race theory. Um, that's just a boogeyman that doesn't really exist. It's 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 an imaginary thing that's just put out there by white conservatives because they don't want to lose power. It's, it's not a real concern. And I'm just wondering, in your situation a few years ago, even though you, had, you didn't know anything about critical race theory, um, it seems like you went through real problems that were not imaginary.
0: 100%. 100%. And I will say this. When I really did start, kind of say, okay, what is this stuff? And I did find, you know, things about critical race theory. It wasn't from conservatives. The the first voices I found and the loudest voices I found were from the left. They were liberals who were speaking out against this because it they experienced it first in their communities, and they were the ones who were speaking out against it and and things like that. Um, you no, know, we talked about you no. Know, a lot of people know James Lindsay. James Lindsay is not a conservative, and he's not a Christian. He's an atheist, right? Um, uh, Brett Weinstein, right? And from the Evergreen situation, Evergreen College situation. Liberal, West Coast, Oregon, progressive, like liberal, speaking out against these things. Um, I've talked about it before, how CRT hit the knitting community and the 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 two people i found from the knitting community that was really speaking out about against this stuff they were liberals and like and so this idea that conservatives make like this in 2019 when the resolution 9 from that southern baptist convention the the resolution on critical race theory which said that critical race theory can be used as an analytical tool in 2019 it passed the Southern Baptist Convention. They voted to approve that. That lets you know they had no idea what it was. Like, the Southern Baptist Convention did not really know what critical race theory was. And so, if this thing was some right-wing concoction boogeyman, they did a poor job of explaining or, you know, of the community itself even knowing what it was because nobody even heard of it when the resolution came up. And so, um, this idea that this is some right-wing conspiracy and boogeyman to take things, you know, discussion off of race. Now have some people probably used it that way. I'm sure, I'm sure they have like to shut down any conversation of race or label anything about race as critical race theory or, or anti-racism. But the truth of the matter is, the loudest voices and the first voices were from the left because they encountered it long before we did. On or in like the SBC, per se. Even um, Chris Rufo, who's kind of like the leading voice um, from a secular um, conservative point of view, um, I listened to him speak. He said when he, he's a conservative now, but when he first came across it and he started writing about it, speaking out against it, he was not a conservative. He was in Seattle. He was a classical liberal, typical Seattle, you know, and he just came across this stuff and started reporting on it. Yeah, so, yeah, he's on the right now, but he wasn't on the right when he started reporting on this stuff. And so that's what doesn't get uh, mentioned when people throw these things out there, especially throwing his name out there. That So he this guy was some right-wing Christian from Seattle? Like, no, he wasn't. Um, and so, like I said, the loudest voices and the most prominent voices are from the left. Not the right. Um, outside of Body Bakum at the time, that really wasn't anybody I knew from the right that was really speaking out against these things. And so, um, yeah, I would just shoot that down. It's just more of a, a talking point from the from certain news sources rather than the actual truth of it. Um, and I, I wrote about it on, on in my Facebook group that I have a friend that I met. And she is in California. She's not a Christian. She's a classical California liberal, Democratic voter. And we were at a work event, and she just kind of started going this mini rant about how she's been a Democrat her whole life, but now she feels like she's forced to vote Republican. And she's a long, and she said, just she said, she said, my views have not changed. Right. And so, um and then when, when I wrote my blog I sent it to her she's not a Christian I said just let me know if something in this resonates with you and she wrote back a long response I had hit the the um the nail on the head for her that's exactly what was pushing her away from her democratic left um I guess you can say culture or um voting habits or you know, she was felt like she was being pushed out. And it was all about critical race theory. And she's a classical liberal. She's a she's on the left. She's a Democratic voter. And in the secular side, you see it now with Bill Maher, who's like the ultimate liberal, Democrat liberal. And now he's speaking out against it. And so trying to frame it as some right wing boogeyman would not be accurate to all the voices that are speaking out against it.
1: Yeah, that's that's really that's a good answer because that is such a such common rhetoric. I mean, even I see hints of that, like on the Gospel Coalition, at times of like this is just all imaginary and it's just nothing to see here. Yeah, it's just white people's attempt to Mm -hmm. keep power and that sort of thing. Yeah. All right, we're we're gonna wrap up. You got one other question? Yes. All right. What do
2: you think? Okay, so I think that there are or there have been. A ton of Black people who have fallen, Black Christians, I'll say, who have fallen prey to critical race theory. Um, not all, not all, no, a ton, but not all. Yeah. Um, or, to a degree, I would, I would probably even say more than critical race theory. A lot of Black liberation theology.
0: Yeah, yeah, what and do I you, was, and I was that's
2: the, a, the appeal to that is.
0: I think. Critical race theory gives some credibility to how a lot of Black people have always felt, right? Um, and this idea that, um, I mean, I've, all white people are racist. You know, racist or racism, racist intent or racism is behind everything. It's the motive for everything that is done. Um, and so, once you have a academic kind of, you know, theory put behind it is just kind of affirming to what you've always heard from a rhetoric standpoint. And so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is it paints us it makes us not just the victims, but the innocent ones. It gives us a sense of innocence, right? And so anything that has happened in our community, any issue in our community, can simply be placed on something from the outside that has occurred or happened to us and it continues to happen to us, right? So there's no internal responsibility. We are simply the innocent ones. That's why liberation theology is so so appealing. It gives a sense of innocence and it gives a sense of being on the right side you know, and I think that's what critical race theory kind of continues to perpetuate this idea that we are on the right side. We are the victims. We are the oppressed. God is with the oppressed. And so um, therefore, you know, racism doesn't go away. It simply mutates. It simply changes in form. And so um, my coworker who had an attitude with me or my boss who doesn't like me, who didn't put who didn't me promotion is because of racism. It's systemic. That's systemic racism because I didn't get promoted, right? And so it can just be it's, it's the catch-all answer for anything in my life that happens to me that I don't like. And that's appealing because it gives an out. It wasn't that I wasn't the best at the job. It wasn't that I have um, a bad attitude. It wasn't that I haven't built the right relationships. It was simply racism, you know? and systemic, and we need more black people in hiring decisions to so that black people can be promoted. You know?
2: Which I, I wish there was a way, like I'm trying, I'm thinking so hard. How do you help people to, to see that, that attitude, that heart posture never really propels you to the place where you desire to be? Because you're technically always under somebody else's thumb. Yeah, know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, you say that, but right now, man, that pos, that position is very, very um, prominent and powerful in our society today.
2: That position is hot. Like it's hot. It it you, is hot. It is because
0: hot. yeah, because the overwhelming kind of the feel of the culture is nobody wants to be racist, and so you it's almost like you got to have a reason not to promote the black person, right? Yes. Um. And so, yeah, having that that position now is very, very popular, and so it's rewarded. Um, some of the people in our church who have gone on to be very prominent voices and get very, very large and nice platforms, right? Um, with that view, why would you? Why would you not? Why would you change it? You're being that, rewarded for it.
2: That that's so true because. Um, Brian just put something in the, in the comments on YouTube and I want to address it. Um, said Brian Texan on YouTube said black person is never at fault for bad choices and decisions. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing, um, in our media, like, like you're saying, like, you know, if we, if we want to look at, you know, shootings and things that are happening in the inner city and, you know, all of that kind of, kind of stuff. um, No, I I don't hear a lot of people talking about, you know, personal choices and decisions and how are we holding people accountable and things like that. And yet your voice or my voice is not going to receive the platform. No, no, you know, it's like, while there is one ideology and it comes down to ideology because we share the same skin color so one ideology does it appears to that they that there is a a pass on a lot of things but then on the other side i feel like i'm held under scrutiny all the time like i can't believe monique said this or Mm -hmm. monique said that and you know people write in or they hit me in my dms and what did you mean by this and you know so it yeah it it some people aren't held to decisions or not, not every group I would say that but I think it falls more on the lines of ideology not skin color.
0: Yeah and I'll say this too just looking back growing up and even now I don't think we realize how much of the black community is driven by conspiracy theories like when we say we're not at fault for anything we have a conspiracy theory for white people doing everything to us I mean, they're responsible for rap music. They're responsible for drugs. They're responsible for the police. They're responsible for, you know, unwed mothers. Like everything in the community is the responsibility of some effort by white people to oppress us and hold us down, no matter what it is. And so I don't think we realize how much we've gravitated to conspiracy theories. Um, and that really shaped the community. you
2: are going to talk about that on off-code. We should. Yes. We should. All right. We are definitely over time. Thank you so much for being with us and for breaking down your experience and allowing us to kind of take a peek into your experience as a, a case study for you know when when a church doesn't when when they wrestle through you know some of the cultural yeah. issues on on race that we're seeing today. We appreciate it and. I'll be seeing you on Off Code.
0: Absolutely. Anytime. And I just want to say, with the blog and, and with this tonight, I just hope, I know with the blog, a lot of people told me in church that they were encouraged by it. Um, it kind of gave them something to go off of. Um, and I hope tonight just brought some more clarity and, and kind of um, direction in that. So, yeah, thanks for having me on.
2: Well, thank
1: you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Kevin. We'll see you yep. soon. Yep.
0: yep. Yeah, have a good one. All, All
1: right. right. Bye. So, uh, I'm curious what takeaways you're, you're, or do we need to read the comments? No, I'm just
2: reading, um, Candy's comment on YouTube, Uh huh. on YouTube. She said, LOL. So true. Sometimes I'm like, why people did that to us too? Like <laughs> telling you everything. Everything. Like like the um I just I retweeted the what's that girl's name the the guy who played in the Pirates of the Caribbean Johnny Depp. Oh. And Johnny Depp and his whatever his wife's name was or is. Um but somebody put on on Twitter. They wrote like a whole blog about it. And they were like, you know, if if a white blonde woman can be found, I guess guilty or whatever, like it didn't go in her favor, what does this mean for black women everywhere? I was like, and so I read the article and a lot of it is like, when, when you kind of parse through it, to me, it was talking more of like white male patriarchy. Like if the white man can do this to, to a white woman, a blonde white woman at that, like, what does that mean for me? I was like, it don't mean a dang thing for me. <laughs> this is this is a lie. This has nothing to do with that, but it is the, the white people's fault again. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you.
1: Well, this is a good co- comment from Gwenda on YouTube. She says, Well, we, as in white people, are responsible for the police. They made some really good music. That's kind of funny. It, it's a group. It. It's a group. Yeah, I'm not
2: I, I don't I don't really know a lot of like historical music. It's not historical, it's from the 80s. Oh, I, I definitely don't know 80s music. Sorry. <laughs> white music. I don't know why my mother didn't okay. Pauline, if you are listening, I am so sorry. And um, I didn't mean to call you Pauline publicly either. Mom, but let me explain. So <laughs> when I was growing up, I was allowed to listen to black music and black music only. There was no white music in our house except for this one guy and he had a deep voice and I didn't realize he was white. I don't even think Pauline (laughs) realized he was white. And now I can't even think of his name or his song, but when, uh, what is his name? Anyway. um, Yeah. We, we were not, she said, uh, what is you listening to then? That's some white music. What you listening to? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Mel says your honesty and self-awareness are so incredibly valuable and needed. Thank you. Uh, There was a very nice comment earlier about Kevin just, how much discernment that his church showed and um, making him an elder and just how wise he he is. He is. He okay. He uh, right. That's why we love Kevin. He very well You
2: know who we really like is Shalonda. That's who we really like.
1: I don't think we're getting Shalonda on this show.
2: No, she not Michael want... Bolton, Gwenda. It was another guy. He's saying, I have to go back. i have to find it. I'll have to find it. Um, Because I remember Michael Bolton in like the, I was, a, I was a kid. I had to be, I don't know, but yeah. Alicia
1: Moss says, hold on while I get my cane. I'm feeling old.
2: No, but yeah. If y'all want to talk about like nineties music. I'm Black nineties music. Yes. Yes. I could. Cause we were not allowed to listen <laughs> to anything white. Like the,
1: so this whole time I thought salt and Pepper was like a, a, a white, white group. She thought it was a
2: white and black group, but they all white. I mean, they're all black, but like salt and pepper or I mean, if I want to go back into like the 80s, probably I can talk about like Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson. Keep in mind, she was like five in the 80s. Alita Adams, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if she was in the eight, the 80s. Regina Bell. I don't know. Maybe um, those that are. girl who sang Superwoman. What was her name? She's like, I'm not your
1: superwoman. That's my jam, girl. <laughs> what in the world? Okay. That was my jam. We're, we're going to go. We, it is we're going to go have it the uh, impact. Biv DeVoe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kevin. She says it's Bobby Caldwell. So she had to YouTube it. Check that off we're gonna get a copyright
2: strike love. all right yes that was bobby Caldwell. now my mama would play some bobby Caldwell, but i i don't think she knew he was i i bet she don't know day he white because <laughs> i remember when somebody told me you know he what i said the devil is a lie what you <laughs> talking about bobby
1: Caldwell? <laughs> yes bobby okay alicia says uh, her teenagers are gonna go to The Immersion next summer at Impact 360. We'll be there, yay! Yeah, we're going to be there um, next month. So maybe we'll be there next year too. Yes. So yeah, check out our friends at Impact 360. They have amazing programs. Um, Gap Year program. They have summer camps. And they even have a grad program, master's program. It's a
2: worldview program. It really um, submerses your, is that the word? Submerse. Immerses, immerses, submerges, immerses.
1: I don't know
2: what that was. I'm still on Bobby Caldwell. Okay. Um, they really dig deep and and bring your kids, your teens, deeper into their worldview and understanding why do they uphold a Christian worldview or do they uphold a Christian worldview? What does it mean? And then they look at some relevant cultural issues like progressive Christianity, critical race theory, deconstruction, and say why is this not in alignment with the historic Christian worldview?
1: Yeah. So. We're um one of the speakers, our friend Alish, uh Elise uh, Childers. Boy, well, we're getting tired. It's been a long day.
2: You know what? So we're uh, in our
1: office. Sean McDowell and, and others, our friend Brett Cunkel, Uncle Kunkel.
2: Girl, we ain't talking about that no more. Okay. So we in our office and the air conditioning broke last week. <laughs> it's so hot and so right the now. air conditioning people are only coming on Monday. Y'all, <laughs> y'all, we done.
1: We done. It's so hot. It is. I sorry to take my jacket off. I couldn't with the jacket during the it show. It is today. hot.
2: At one point, the heat was blowing. <laughs> I could feel it. I'm right under the vent. It was just like a, a warm trickle. People, I cannot even. I cannot.
1: Anyway, are are we gonna? Um, I want to let everybody know that the family meetings are now available as a podcast. Yes. So if thank you, you can't so tune much. In live. I talked to the queen here into letting me put them up on Apple Podcasts. So just go search for Center for Biblical Unity. And uh, Bob's got the last, I don't know, seven or so meetings up there uh, that people can access as a podcast. So go check that out.
2: You call me the queen as if I, you know, do something weird. I am not. No,
1: you are the queen. I am not
2: stop it already. Anyway, you guys, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for hanging out with us and um yeah, just sharing and doing, you know, the life and the show with us. We are we're appreciative. We're grateful for you. Yeah. Um check out Theology Mom um at theologymom.com. See what's going on on her page. If you haven't listened to her interview with Carl Payne, Dr. Carl Payne, check that out. It's on um Deliverance. Yeah. And it's just it's it's a very well done conversation it's not like a uber you know nar um circus yeah it's it's, it's not, not a circus. no one's talking about gold dust and things like that. and if you, that's your thing then you know but we're not talking about that we're we're really taking a conservative look at deliverance okay. and is that something for today um and then check yeah. out
1: go ahead I was going to say next week we're going to be at the women in apologetics conference. So we're going to be actually doing a live show for the first time. So next week, when you tune in, you're going to be catching a replay that we will have done on Thursday night um, as a live show. We've always wanted to do a live show in front of a live studio audience. So you'll see the hijinks with one of Monique's old college friends. So we're looking forward to that
2: my college friend's sister. Yes. Yes. So, um college acquaintance. Yeah, super just super thankful for you. Also check out the Center for Biblical Unity. Um follow us if you're not get in the conversation. We're talking about everything related to race, justice and unity but from a historically mm-hmm. Christian perspective. Um and it's interesting because The things that unite us are really the things that we're focusing on. And what does it look like to have a historically Christian position, not just around race, not just around justice, but also around things like the LGBTQ plus conversation, the things on um, SEL or, you know, any of the critical social theories progressive Christianity, deconstruction. Yep. So we are definitely wanting to take a unified approach. you being unified in our theology. So mm-hmm. do that and we will see you. Well, we'll have our live show, um, but it will play on next Saturday.
1: Yeah. So we'll see you live again, God willing, in two weeks. Good night and God bless. Good night.
0: Thanks for listening to All the Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.